Sports fans of all ages, faces, and places from every stadium, arena, and auditorium all over the world. May I have your attention, please? Well, time's coming when we're going to have to handy up. Handy up and kick in like men. Like men! It is now time to bring to your listening ears, hearts, and minds a sports podcast named Wendell's World in Sports. With the one and only Wendell Wallace. Tell him how you feel. A podcast that gives you strong, passionate, unapologetic, uncompromised thoughts and opinions about the everyday happenings in the NFL. Mahomes looking to flip, takes it in for the touchdown. And college football to the NBA in my Georgetown Hoyas. Giannis fires one down and an exclamation point for Milwaukee. To any other sporting news of the day. And now, introducing the man whose love of sports was born and bred on the greatest Muhammad Ali, Lim Bias, Magic Johnson, Bernard King, and Eric Dickerson, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselles, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Me llamo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Good morning, good abend, shalom, wassalam alaikum, konnichiwa, namaste, all that good stuff. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hope everybody's doing absolutely fantastic. As always, anywhere where you're listening to this podcast, iHeart, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, do me a favor. Wendell's World of Sports, download, subscribe, rate, review. Most importantly, though, enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast. If you could do that, it would be absolutely fantastic and really, really, really make my day. Before I get into speaking about what's going on in the world of sports, before I start speaking about week two of the NFL season and start speaking about college football, I want to dedicate this podcast to... A really, really great guy who gave me the opportunity years and years ago to uh, teach or substitute one of his classes, which really turned out to be one of the most enjoyable experiences that I've had, not just being a substitute teacher, a guest teacher working for the Clark County School District, but just one of the greatest experiences that I've had in terms of uh, my, my working experience. I want to give a special dedication to David Tate, who unfortunately passed away about a week ago. He was 60 years old. Great, great guy. Great, great man. Had his son when I was substituting up in Mesquite at the uh, middle school, but he was a great guy. Gave me the opportunity to... um, Gave me the opportunity to substitute his class multiple times for when he was uh, teaching third grade, and uh, those kids were absolutely fantastic. It was one of the best experiences of my life, and uh, I want to thank him for that. He was always a good man. He was always kind to me. He was always really, really uh, a fantastic guy. So the world lost an absolutely fabulous man, and um, my condolences to his family, and I hope that he is resting in power in paradise where he absolutely belongs. Special dedication in this program This podcast is dedicated today to Mr. David Tate. So I just wanted to uh, throw that out there or mention that before I go ahead and move on and start speaking about the NFL, which is now in week two as I make the segue to the second week of the uh, season. As I mentioned before, hey man, chapter two of the book, the novel, the play, whatever, um, in terms of what's happening, in terms of what's going on, in terms of making some type of concrete decisions or acclamations or proclamations or anything like that concerning teams that are 1-1, one one, teams that are 0-2, oh teams that are 2-0, oh, not going there. 
not going there. As I said this before, the NFL is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yes, I know that's normally applied when you're speaking about baseball, which plays 162 games. When you're speaking about basketball, which plays 82 games. When you're speaking about the NHL, when it plays 82 games. It's football that only has 17 games. Normally, you provide that moniker of marathon, not a sprint to those three sports, the NBA, NHL, and Major League Baseball, and not really to to football. But when you think about the mental grind, when you think about the physical toll, and you take a, take a look at the physicality of the sport, even though it's 17 games, only 17 games when it's compared to the number of those other sports that I just mentioned, I think more of a mental grind and toll it takes on football in terms of playing both mentally and physically more than anything else. So when you're speaking about the NFL, when you're speaking about Week 2, as I've always said before, Week 2, Week 3, Week 4, Week 5, sometimes even up the Week six, seven, and eight, we really can't get, we really don't get a full grasp or we really don't have a great understanding in terms of the totality of what the NFL is all about in terms of which teams are going to be doing great, which teams are going to be doing wonderful, which teams are overachieving, which teams are going to be making the playoffs, which teams are already out of the playoffs, which teams are um, exceeding expectations, which teams are disappointing, which teams are going to be making wholesale changes, whether it be the coaching staff, whether it be the quarterback, whether it be another position player. After two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, you still cannot make a clear proclamation on any of these things. Now, you can go ahead and take a look and say some teams that are 0-2 are going to be terrible for the entire year, or, or some teams that are 2-0 are going to be great, and they're going to be one of the elite teams that are going to be trying to win that Super Bowl. You can make those type of proclamations, but I'm, taking, I'm talking about as the league in its totality in terms of the entire scope of what the NFL is all about. Man, we can't make anything. We can't determine anything after two games. So what have I always told you? When you're watching the NFL for the month of September, when you're watching the NFL for half or almost all of the month of October, just enjoy it. What did Aaron Rodgers say that one time when he was with the Packers before he tore his Achilles with the Jets? R-E-L-A-X. There's no need to P-A-N-I-C. There's no need to do it after two games. No matter what your expectation of your team was, whether they're 2-0, whether they're 0-2, whether they're 1-1. Look, man, my Washington Commanders right now are 2-0. They came back from, what, a 21-7 deficit in Denver. Stage held off a Hail Mary to win a football game. They're 2-0. Am I dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas? Am I dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie? Am I doing the boogaloo to James Brown and the funky chicken too, talking about the, 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 the commanders have turned the corner, the curse of Daniel Snyder has been lifted, so because of that, because they started out with victories over Arizona at home and then this comeback victory over a team in Denver that's now 0-2, that uh, if you want to take um, a look at it, has not lived up to expectations. If you want to be so quick with that um, notion, with quick with that uh, assertion, then all of a sudden now my Washington Commanders, we're going to be head, we're going to be the surprise team of the league. Ron Rivera is going to save his job. Eric Bieniemy is going to show that he was worthy of being one of the top offensive coordinators in the game today. The Washington Commanders are back. They're going to make the playoff. They're going to challenge the Eagles and the Cowboys and all this stuff. The front four, 
the defensive line of the commanders now after two games, I'm ready to say without question, without doubt, without any type of uh, pushback from anybody, the Washington commanders defensive front four is the best in football, or at least one of the best with the 49ers and others. I'm not going to do that yet. I'm not going there yet. We found ourselves a quarterback. We've got ourselves a quarterback, Sam Howell. That's the guy. Here we go. No, 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 no. I'm not doing that after two games. I'm glad that they won. I'm glad that my commanders are 2-1-0 instead of 0-2. But if you expect me to then take that and jump to conclusions that the commanders are back or the commanders are going to shake the world up or any of this kind of nonsense, no. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that at all. I'm glad that they're 2-0. But, man, you know, this is a long Long, long season. So, look, as I mentioned before, the first four to six weeks of the season, watching as a fan, seeing the storylines and plots being set for the season, that's what you should be taking a look at. That's what you should be looking at. That's what should be in your mind, man. So, what do we take away from week one of the season, chapter one, right? If we could go ahead and take a look back, right? The takeoff from uh, the Meadowlands to the immediate crashing of New York Jets flight number eight, Aaron Rodgers whose destination was supposed to be Las Vegas to win an NFL championship for the first time in 50 years, right? That was the main storyline, main plot, main uh, thing coming out of week one, the impressive victories by Miami and Dallas and Baltimore and San Francisco, the positive start for Detroit, right? People were speaking about Detroit, their expectations down, there no more Lions of the old, no more, this ain't your uh, father's, Detroit Lions. This ain't your grandma's Detroit Lions. This ain't the, the since Bobby Lane, the, the curse of Bobby Lane is going to be lifted, and now the Detroit Lions with uh, Jared Goff at the quarterback, they're going to be making the playoffs. So those expectations took a good start the first week of the season, the first game of the season, where they beat the Kansas City football team, where many people after week one, when it came down to Kansas City, right? What was the what was the scuttlebutt? What was the talking points? Man, Kansas City, how are they going to score? They don't have any receivers. They're dirt at receivers. They don't have anybody. Where's the skill players? What's going to be going on, this, that, and the other? Can Patrick Mahomes be Herculean enough to lift Kansas City out of the lack of weapons that he has? No more Tyreek Hill. Jason, uh, Travis Kelsey missed a game because of injury. Oh, my goodness gracious. They didn't generate the type of offense that... Um, they normally do in the seasons before. What's happening with the Kansas City football team? Those were the question marks concerning uh, Buffalo, Seattle, Minnesota after their underwhelming performances in week one. The bad performance by Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What's going on with the Bengals? Uh-oh. What's going on with the Steelers? Did you see how they get run, got ran over by... Um, by the San Francisco 49ers, oh my goodness gracious, can he pick it? I don't know, blah, blah, blah. So those were all of the talking points. Those were what we read. Those are what we saw. Those are what we uh, spoke about after week one, right? So now week two, the teams that are 2-0, and you've got Miami, Baltimore, Dallas, Philadelphia, my Washington Commanders, yay, yay. San Francisco, Atlanta, Tampa Bay, New Orleans, teams that are 0-2, you got Carolina, Chicago, Minnesota, Arizona, Houston, Cincinnati, Denver, the LA Chargers in the New England Patriots. Now it says here the teams that have started the season after losing their first two games since 2002, around 1-10 teams that have started 0-2 have made the playoffs when the 
Bengals started that the uh, last season 0-2. They became the first franchise to start 0-2 and make the playoffs since 2018. So, you know, oh my goodness gracious, what are we going to do? What's going to be happening, this, that, and the other? And then you speak about what's going to be happening this upcoming week with these 0-2 teams. If they lose to fall to 0-3, what's going to be the just position to make a playoff spot or to earn a playoff spot or get into position to earn a playoff spot? Well, Teams that have started off 0-3 in the season since 2002, 99 have started 0-3, right? Just one of those teams, that's the 2018 Houston Texans, has made it to the playoffs. So, oh my goodness gracious, this, that, and the other. Now, you take a look on the other side of the coin, the teams that have started off 2-0 since the NFL expanded its postseason in 1990. About 64% of the teams that have started 2-0 have advanced to the postseason. So, yeah, look, 42% of the teams that have began the season 1-1 and have reached the playoffs since 1990. Wonderful, fantastic, this, that, and the other. So, early, you have some early percentages, you have some early marking, you have some early clues of what's going to be happening. But look, every 0-2 team has different expectations, just like every 2-0 team has different expectations. When you take a look at the teams, for instance, that are 0-2, have started the season, and you're speaking about, well, what does that mean? What are we looking for? What type of um, what type of expectations are we going to place on them going forward? Should we be should we be speaking about them trying to make the playoffs? What should be the goal? What should be the aspirations, the short and long-term goals of some of these teams that have started off 2-0 in terms of them making the playoffs? It's all over the board with those teams. Like, for instance, Arizona, are you shocked? Are you surprised? Are you mesmerized? Are you bamboozled that Arizona started off the season no one 2 Now, yes, hold on, hold on. I know what you're going to say. Well, Wendell, you just told us that 0-2, you, you shouldn't take anything into that. You shouldn't read anything into that because it's a long season. It's a physical grind and all the surprises and this, that, and the other. I did say that. I did say that. But also, what did I say? That some of these teams that start off 2-0, and some of these teams that start off 0-2, and some of these teams that you're going to make predictions on on what their season is going to turn out are going to be correct. But not all of them. Some of these teams, yeah, Arizona, I can tell you right now, in all certainty, are not going to be winning the Super Bowl. Josh Dobbs is not going to be the quarterback of a team in Arizona that's going to be competing for a Super Bowl in Las Vegas in February. But then again, Arizona knows that. The franchise knows that. The owner knows that. The GM knows that. The president of football operations knows that. The players know that. So what are their goals? What are their aspirations? What are their dreams short and long-term for this season? Arizona started off 0-2. Arizona has made it clear since the offseason, this past offseason, that they're not interested in going to the playoffs. Their goal is to get the number one pick so they can select Caleb Williams out of USC. So that should be, everybody when you're speaking about narrative, everybody who is a fan of a team, not we, we have to... We have to temper our expectations and our enthusiasm, as I've been saying for years. Look, man, don't be hating on the NFL. Don't be down on the NFL. Don't be grouchy about the NFL because your team stinks, man. Always take that glass half full approach. Not only because every single season we don't know what's going to happen in terms of which team is going to shock the world and do better 
much better than expectations start at the beginning of the season, which teams are going to disappoint, which is the reason why we get out of bed every Sunday or after going to church, we go ahead and watch these games or we go ahead and go to work on Monday half asleep because we stayed up to watch the Sunday night football game. That's what brings us back to the channel. That's what brings us back to the game itself. The fact that we don't know. With certainty, though, I can tell you by the way that they're acting that Arizona, their goal is to get Caleb Williams. Their goal is to bottom out so they can get Caleb Williams. That was perfectly made. People are speaking about um, Tyler Mur- uh, Kyler Murray who had off-season ACL surgery. In early January, remember the last game, one of the last games of the season, uh, Murray tore his ACL. Well, they're sitting up there talking about, well, you know, there's a chance that he could come back and blah, 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 blah. I'm telling you something like right now. Let, let's just say, for instance, after after 13 games, you have Arizona sitting at 2-11. and 11. Why in the world would you bring Kyler Murray back? We're playing for the number one pick in the NFL draft. Kyler Murray might win us some NFL football games. Might. Or at least gives us a better chance to win NFL football games. I don't want him back. And as a fan for the Arizona Cardinal, you should be rooting. And I know this is... I, 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 I know this might not sound correct or whatever, but if I'm a fan of the Arizona Cardinals, I want that team to go 0-17. I don't want them boys winning any games. When they were up 28-7 against the New York Giants this past Sunday, if I'm an Arizona Cardinals fan, I'm saying, no! No! We don't want to win this game. We need to be 0-2. Because I don't know how bad the Houston Texans are going to be. I don't know if Joe Burrow goes down how bad the Cincinnati Bengals are going to be. I don't know what that performance on Monday that I saw from the Carolina Panthers. I don't know how bad they're going to be. Carolina looks like a four-win football team, a three-win football team. Houston looks like a four- or five-win football team. If I'm a fan of the Arizona Cardinals, man, I don't want us winning football games. I want us losing. Why? Because I want the opportunity to get Caleb Williams, Drake May, whatever. I need to get that franchise quarterback. I need to hit the reset button. Jack Rosen was drafted. That didn't work. Kyler Murray was drafted. That had up and down and negative, positive, inconsistent uh, performances and, and, um, and that type of thing. So I need to try it again. So whether it be Drake May out of North Carolina, whether it be Caleb Williams out of USC, the two best quarterbacks in college football, sorry, Shador, I'm going up there, and I want to have Caleb Williams on my football team if I'm Arizona. So, hell no, I don't want them winning. Hell no. So, yeah, so when the Giants came back and basically saved themselves a week of hell, the way they were they were playing at one time through six quarters of the season, New York being outscored 60, what, 61 to nothing or some nonsense like that, finally turned it around. Daniel Jones finally turned it around. Saquon Barkley, we don't know if he's going to be coming back or we don't know when he's going to be coming back. They say three weeks. Head coach Brian Dayball was speaking about he's a fast healer, so it might be sooner than that. Oh, let it be. It's still going to be at least three weeks. But um, the Giants came back and won that game. What type of momentum is that going to build in the short term for New York? We'll get to that soon. But, whoa, thank goodness, thanks alive that the Arizona Cardinals fell to uh, 0-2. Because when you're going, probably going to sit out Tyler, excuse me, Kyler Murray for the yes, rest of the year, 
then you release DeAndre Hopkins and you trade Isaiah Simmons, you're you're telling me that you ain't interested in winning. So if you're an Arizona Cardinal football fan and you want them to win 10 games or 11 games or compete in the NFC West, why? Your goal is just to have Arizona be decent? Your goal this season is for the your Arizona Cardinals to be somewhat good, somewhat surprising. What does that even mean for the Arizona Cardinals with the talent that they have to have a surprising season? A surprising season for Arizona is not winning the Super Bowl. A surprising season for Arizona is not even making the playoffs. The surprising season for Arizona is for them to win at least seven, eight, or nine games. What's that going to get you? What's a 9-8 record going to get you? What's a 7-10 uh, record going to get you? Moral victories? There's no moral victories. There's no orange slices. There's no participation trophies in this game. If you're an Arizona Cardinal football fan, again, I want to be vying for a championship. I want a team that compete for a, for a championship. If not, then let's start to rebuild. Let's start at, at the bottom of the mountain, and let's start climbing, climbing up again. So if you're an Arizona Cardinal football fan, embrace being at the bottom of the mountain. Embrace. And if teams and if your general manager and such know what they're doing, then you'll eventually get that opportunity but as for right now the expectations 0-2 Arizona Cardinals bottom out my man go 0-17 there's no shame in that there's no shame in rooting against that like I said led 28-7 against New York this past weekend I'd be mad as hell I'd be like man what are y'all doing what are y'all doing both Arizona and New York what are y'all doing you ain't supposed to be winning this football game look Houston speaking of 0-2 football teams that's another franchise where what's going to be the narrative? What's going to be the plot? What's this, that, and the other? Lose. Lose, lose, lose. They need more talent to surround C.J. Stroud, who looks after two games like he could be a quarterback that you could hang your hat on, that you can build with. But after a 31-20 loss at home to the Colts on Sunday, only the Bears and the Giants have a worse point differential through two games. And the Giants lost, what, 40 to nothing or something like that on uh, Sunday night football to the Cowboys, so they got a lot of room to make up. But, uh, yeah, if you're the Houston Texans, lose, man. Lose, 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 lose. There's no shame in losing. I want uh, I, I want their head coach to, to do well. But, man, you know, start stockpiling talent. You did a good job in terms of drafting Will Anderson. Uh, did a good job in drafting C.J. Stroud, we believe. But, uh, you know, go in there and c- continue to lose. Arizona and Houston, those teams, their narrative, their plots, their – their, their stories should be about losing. Lose, lose as much as you can. Especially if you're the number one spot. If Houston can get that number one spot, they won't need a Caleb Williams. They won't need a franchise quarterback. So that could open them up to all sorts of possibilities. More draft picks by trading the picks. Especially with a quarterback like Caleb Williams available. Unlike last season where Bryce Young was the top quarterback, the fervor the fever, the demand for um, that number one pick because of Bryce Young is not going to be as strong as it is for Caleb Williams because I believe as far as an NFL prospect is concerned, Caleb Williams is a much better prospect than Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, and even Anthony Richardson. Oh, by the way, Anthony Richardson, who went out of the game with a concussion, um, a little lesson for you? You're in the NFL now? Don't be hot-dogging. Don't be celebrating before you get into the end zone. 
You're a big, strong young man who could take hits more than some of the other quarterbacks in the in the league who are who are as light as build. But still, taking a hit is taking a hit. And when you slowed up inside the five yard line on Sunday, when you were getting into the end zone, you paid the price. So lesson lesson, welcome to the NFL, young man. When you're going into the end zone, even if you think there ain't nobody around you, sprint. Use that tremendous athletic ability and sprint into the end zone. So next time, we hope if you're an Indianapolis fan or if you have Anthony Richardson on your fantasy team, you can go ahead and wish him luck in that regard. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us taking a look at some of the 0-2 teams, taking a look at some of the narrative, taking a look at some of the expectations, what you should be cheering for as a fan. Again, if you're the Houston Texans as a team, as a fan, what do you want to see? You want to see continued improvement from your two Number one, draft picks. See where you need to go with that. Build that narrative to say if we can lose in games, get that number one pick that puts us in a whole in a whole good bunch of options that we can use. The Houston Texans, in all likelihood, are not going to be competing for a 2023 NFL championship. But you can use this season of losing in misery and poor play and bad record to eventually get to the point where in 27-28, the 2027-2028 season, those the 2029, that window, you'll have that opportunity to compete for championships. Building those expectations to that to those seasons starts right now, not by winning, but by losing. The Chicago Bears. What are we going to do with the Chicago Bears? Started 0-2, losing to Tampa Bay 27-17. What should be the plot? What should be the reason? Why should you watch? What's going on with this? What is going to bring your eyeballs, your attention, your brain to being interested in the Chicago Bears? I'm interested with the whole Justin Fields situation. What's going on with that, man? It's way too early. It's way too early to be speaking about should we start labeling Justin Fields as a as a bust, but um, f- through the first two games, Fields has regressed. Chicago Bears fans, you can't dispute that. Now it, it could be a situation where they have a poor offensive line. You can put it maybe on the coaching. You can put it on a lot of things, but. Justin Fields is not playing his part. In fact, as I mentioned again, he has regressed. He's averaging a league-low five yards per pass through the air against Tampa Bay. He threw two fourth-quarter interceptions when Chicago was trying to get back into the game. And I'm thinking there, I'm thinking as Fields is regressing, or at least starting off the season bumpy, I'm not saying that this is going to be a prelude to what Justin Fields is going to do for the entire season because it's so young into the season. And what did I tell you about the first two, three, four, five, six weeks of the season? R-E-L-A-X. So determining about Justin Fields and when we're going to bench him or can he be saved or is he a bust or this, that, and the other, even though he has regressed and even though he has not played well for the first two games, I'm not ready to uh, throw in a towel or I'm not ready to make some type of proclamation to send him down to Benchville or to um, anything else. So what could expedite the situation or the decision, though, is um, as far as changing quarterbacks is concerned, is Matt Eberflus who fell to 3-16 and 16 so far as a head coach. Now, as Matt Everflus, what do you do in terms of, look, man, 
I mean, I need to save my job. Now, your job is tied to the progression or to the maturity or to the improvement of Justin Fields. Justin Fields was picked by the Chicago Bears to basically be the greatest quarterback since Sid Luckman for the Chicago Bears. Right now, I'm quite sure Chicago Bears fan would take Bobby Evans or Vince Young. Or, I'm sorry, Vince Young, Vince Evans, or Bobby... Who was the guy who led the Bears in the 60s in rushing? He ran for over a thousand yards. Well, whatever. We'll we we'll, we'll we'll take sixty five percent of Jim McMahon right now. If you're Chicago Bears concerning Justin Fields, so Matt Eberflus, who is coaching for his job, that might in some way kind of determine him saying, "Look, man, I got to go ahead and I got to bench this, this this guy because he's not giving me any way, shape, or form to to uh, make it through the year, and I'm not going to uh, get Nathaniel Hackett." Um, after this season. So I want to do everything that I can to keep my job. So when you take a look at Chicago's next few games and this upcoming week they're at Kansas City, then on Thursday night they play Denver before playing at Washington, then at home to Minnesota, then Las Vegas, then back out to uh, Los Angeles to play the Chargers, then going down to the Boogie to play New Orleans before returning home to play Carolina, then going to Motown to play Detroit, then over to the Twin Cities to play Minnesota before the bye week. By weeks, normally, if a change is going to be made with coaches and anything like that, that's the time it usually happens. So this could give Chicago enough ammunition, enough information, enough film, enough things to study when you speak about the amount of games that Chicago have, has before going to the bye week. This could be a situation where, starting right now, Justin Fields is playing for his future, being this is the third year in Chicago, could be playing for his future as the starting quarterback in Chicago, as well as Matt Eberflus trying to do everything that he can to keep his job. When you're speaking about 0-2 teams here on Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Another team that kind of stood out to me as far as being 0-2, the Carolina Panthers. Another team where, again, we should be looking at them and saying, Lose, lose, lose. Because somehow, someway, man, if you're Carolina, you've got to do something about that offensive line. That offensive line for Bryce Young has been putrid. They've been putrid in the preseason. And through the first two games, they've been putrid. They've allowed six sacks, 15 quarterback hits through the first two games against New Orleans. Young finished the game 22 or 33 for 153 yards and a touchdown. And you might look at that and say, yeah, not, not too, 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 too shabby. But then you have to think prior to the final drive of the night when New Orleans was basically playing a pre-vet defense. Before that, Young was 14 or 23 for 92 yards. Very few of his passes were thrown over the middle or down the field, marking the second straight week where he vertically was non-existent. Drew Brees, at the end of his career, could get away with that. Peyton Manning, at the end of his career, barely, because of the defense for Denver, could get away with that. Bryce Young can't get away with that. Bryce Young doesn't have the weapons. Bryce Young doesn't have Alvin Kamara. Bryce Young doesn't have Michael Thomas at his prime like like Drew Brees did when he was losing his arm strength. Bryce Young doesn't have the defense that Peyton Manning had that allow him to ride the coattails of Bradley Chubb and those guys to win a Super Bowl back in 2014-15, one of those years. The Carolina Panthers need some help on the offensive line. And, and, I, and I've said this before, and I saw this 
I mentioned this on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, or in a couple of uh, after watching Carolina play their second preseason game. If Bryce Young is going to take this type of punishment, if Bryce Young is going to play behind this offensive line, if Bryce Young is going to be playing with the below average skill players that's being put on his table, why are we playing Bryce Young? I, I, I know he's the number one pick. I know he earned his spot. I, I know all this. But if you're Carolina, aren't you wanting to play the long game? Bryce Young can't take these pressures. Bryce Young can't take these hits. Bryce Young can't take these sacks. So where are we going with this? Are we, are we looking for Bryce Young to be beat up in two or three years? Are we going to give Bryce Young a chance? Because you're not giving him any type of chance behind this offensive line. How can you truly evaluate Bryce Young? And I know it's early in the season. Early in the season. I get it. It's early in the season. But man, how can you expect Bryce Young to improve the way you want him to improve and evaluate him after one year if, you, if he's going to be playing behind this offensive line? How can you? How can you really judge Bryce Young playing behind this offensive line? How can you make a true decision moving forward on what you need beside offensive linemen if you're going to give him the tools to work with, with our, which are so shabby? I say, man, put another quarterback in there before until this uh, offensive line gets better. Take your licks, lose some games, and then move on forward. Again, if you're Carolina, even though the NFC South is not what it used to be, there's no more Tom Brady. There's no more Drew Brees. You know, there's question marks surrounding all of these teams in the NFC South when you speak about Atlanta, when you speak about New Orleans, when you speak about Tampa Bay. So it's a situation where maybe we could, rose-colored glasses, long season, who knows? Maybe we could be that surprise team. Have you watched the first couple of games of the season? Have you seen Vince, excuse me, have you seen Bryce Young at the quarterback position be pressured on almost every single drop by, by an inept offensive line? Maybe the offensive line can get better. How much better can they get? When you're talking about sacrificing the future for a guy that you drafted number one with the hopes of him leading you to being one of the elite teams in football in the next two or three or four years. Are you going to put him behind that offensive line? All right. All right. Something to look at. The narrative, all those things. So Denver. How about these Denver Broncos, huh? Started off the Sean Payton era with uh, two losses. Coming into the season, many pundits thought the Broncos would beat the Raiders, the Commanders at home. And how much time are we going to give Sean Payton to quote-unquote fix or quote-unquote save Russell Wilson? Save him from being benched? Save him from, I don't know. I mean, when he was in Seattle, he was... He was walking down Hall of Fame Boulevard, right? He was he was on his way. He was within the city limits of Hall of Fameville. Now, all of a sudden, that car that he was driving him to take him to that city, all of a sudden now has sputtered. Now, we don't know if that car, which is right now leaking oil and doing all those, to- all those type of things, we don't know if he's going to be able to make it to Hall of Fameville. And he has a cell phone that don't work to call an Uber to take him to Hall of Fameville. Sean Payton was supposed to be that guy that was supposed to fix that car. Sean Payton was supposed to be that guy that was going to be the Uber or the Lyft that was going to take him there. But so far, it's been mixed results. Now, is this going to be some type of proclamation in terms of um, we've already had the answer 
to the question, can Sean Payton save Russell Wilson? Well, no. But look, man, through the first two weeks, it's been a tale of two halves, right? The first half, Russell Wilson looked like his old self or sort of kind of his old self. He's averaged a league-high 10 yards per pass attempt. QBR, best, NFL best of 97.1. That's been in the first half of these two games against the Raiders and the Commanders. In the second half, Wilson's QBR has dropped to around 17, which ranks 29th in the league, and that's even after the Hail Mary pass on Sunday against Washington. And he's, and he's averaging just five yards per attempt after the break and take and has taken six sacks on 47 dropbacks. So, all right. We'll see what happens. Again, are you really going to uh, make some type of decision on Sean Payton in terms of whether he can turn around this Denver Broncos team after two games? I'm not. But it's going to be something to work with. It's going to be something. We, we, we have ourselves a narrative. We have ourselves a plot. What can we do with the Denver Broncos? What can we do with the New England Patriots? I'm interested now to see when are we ever going to come to the conclusion? When are we going to come to the conclusion? When is the answer going to be is going to be uh, given with Matt Jones. Matt Jones, through his career, you know what he looks like? He looks like a good to pretty good quarterback. Even with Bill Belichick as your head coach, can you win a Super Bowl with a good to pretty good quarterback? And with Matt Jones, is that basically what we have? That's basically what he is. A good a pretty good quarterback. Maybe there's an offensive coordinator that can get him to very good. Maybe you could get him in the uh, same realm when Tony Romo was playing quarterback, or maybe if you want to compare quarterbacks right now, maybe you can get into that sphere of him being uh, this generation's Kirk Cousins or Dak Prescott, you know, a guy who on some days is going to be in the, who's going to be the eighth best quarterback, fourth, uh, excuse me, the uh, sixth or seventh or eighth best quarterback on a given Sunday, but most of the time he's going to be somewhere between 13 and 16. Is that good enough as far as a quarterback is concerned to uh, lead you to the Super Bowl or to have Super Bowl aspirations? And if that's not the case, if there is a ceiling on Mac Jones in terms of what he can do to lead you to a Super Bowl, when do you start making a decision if you're New England to say, well, maybe we need to go in a different direction because while we like Mac Jones, Mac Jones is a quarterback that's going to get us to probably somewhere between 11 and 6 12 and 5, and then lose maybe in the first round or second round of the playoffs. He's not going to be that guy when you're speaking about him being in the same conference as a Tua Tunga Vailoa, which has weapons like uh, Tyreek Hill and, and Justin Waddle, or when you're speaking about him being in a conference that has Lamar Jackson and Joe Burrow and Patrick Mahomes and uh, Justin uh, Herbert, that uh, maybe, maybe this isn't the guy. I know those, those guys that I just mentioned are elite, are are projected to be elite quarterbacks in the upcoming years. So it's not as easy just to go ahead and say, we'll just go ahead and get ourselves an elite quarterback. I know those don't grow on trees. You can't go to the elite quarterback store. There's none, there's none in the mall. There's none, there's no store that exists like that where you can go ahead and buy yourself a, or get yourself a elite quarterback. So it's a situation. If you're new England, where do you go with this? Do I think that there are uh, any dark clouds ahead with them being 0-2? No, but you don't know, man. You never know. You never know. 
You never know. So good stuff, man, when it comes to these 0-2 teams. Where we're going to go? What are we going to be speaking about? When you take a look at some of the games of interest this week in week three, chapter three, shall we say, Thursday night game between New York and San Francisco. I think it's going to be interesting, especially after New York coming back from that uh, deficit against Arizona. We're still trying to figure out which type of team the uh, New York Giants are, which team are they closer to the second half against the Arizona Cardinals or the first six quarters against the Dallas Cowboys and the Cardinals. Denver at Miami. Again, the situation, Sean Payton trying to fix Russell Wilson. What happens if Denver starts 0-3? And another, again, another test for uh, Miami, who is uh, playing a defense that should be legit. They might, they might not be playing at the same level that they did last season so far. But again, it's only two games. Speaking about that Denver defense, how are they going to do? And then, I guess, a game where you're speaking about implications, ramifications down the road. The Los Angeles Chargers and the Minnesota Vikings. I mean, that narrative around Kurt Cousins has always been, you know, Kurt doesn't show up for the big game. He can't get it done, this, that, and the other. He's a good quarterback, not a great quarterback. Minnesota's starting off 0-2. He's signed for what he's signed for. And then for the Los Angeles Chargers, who lost another close game, um, this is a situation where if you're Brandon Staley, you know, again, you need to change the narrative. You need to change the plot. You need to change uh, what's going on or else one of the main characters for the Los Angeles Chargers 2023 season is going to be gone. It's going to be written off, which is going to be the head coach, Brandon Staley, if he doesn't turn things around, I believe. So you have the rest of the games this upcoming weekend in the NFL, Tennessee at Cleveland. Cleveland has a defense, I believe, that can, can have them competing for the NFC South. Excuse me, for the AFC North. But man, Deshaun Watson... Deshaun Watson, what what's going on with him? Deshaun Watson isn't going anywhere. The man signed a five-year, $230 million contract, most of that, all of that guaranteed. So this is not a situation where we're going to be on Deshaun Watson watch in terms of when he's going to be benched or when he's going to be replaced. That's not going to be the situation. He's making way too much money. He's making way too much guaranteed money. But come on, man. Losing Nick Chubb is devastating. It's terrible. But when you're making $230 million, all of that guaranteed, the blow of losing Chubb should not be as impactful as it seems to be with the play of Deshaun Watson. And are we ever going to see that? Is that Deshaun Watson, who was one of the best quarterbacks for the Houston Texans uh, before he started getting freaky with it and had suspended and missed some time. Is that Deshaun Watson never going to come through that door? Kevin Stefanski is waiting for that Deshaun Watson to come through that door. The Cleveland Browns and Jimmy Haslam, who's writing those checks, are waiting for that Deshaun Watson to come walking through that door. Because the Deshaun Watson that came walking through that door right now is not the Deshaun Watson that's in earning anywhere close to the $230 million that he signed for, that he was traded for, the equity and the prospects and the and everything that was given up to get him. Deshaun Watson is not coming close to performing like that. He's maybe possibly starting to reach Herschel Walker when he was traded from Dallas to Minnesota when Mike Lynn, the general manager for the Cowboys, excuse me, for the Vikings, gave up a king's ransom for a for a clown, for a jester, which turned out to be in terms of the impact that Herschel Walker gave to the Vikings, them being a running back away at that time from them competing for a Super Bowl. So are we looking at this 
with Deshaun Watson. That's the narrative. That's the plot. That's everything that we need to take a look at. So that continues with them on Sunday as they play Tennessee. With that defense, at the very least, and a 75% of what Deshaun Watson was, Cleveland should be a playoff team. We'll, con- we'll, we'll see. We'll tune in. We'll continue to read and see if Cleveland and Deshaun Watson can turn things around. We have Atlanta at Detroit. We have New Orleans at Green Bay. The Jordan Love uh, saga continues. New England at the New York Jets. That that happened, right? And the uh, Zach Wilson, the euphoria of the Jets winning Monday night against the Buffalo Bills in their opening game. That came crashing down to earth. Um, Buffalo at my Washington Commanders. Buffalo, great bounce back game. Again, Washington 2-1-0. Let's see if they can face the stiffest test that they have so far this season. And Buffalo playing at home. Houston at Jacksonville. Indianapolis at Baltimore. Baltimore looks pretty good. Much better game from Lamar Jackson this past week than he did in week one where he had some fumbles. Carolina at Seattle. Chicago at Kansas City. Kansas City. Showing some defense, right? Very impressive. Um, Arizona at Dallas, that's or Dallas at Arizona. Um, that's kind of like a homecoming game. Pittsburgh at the Las Vegas Raiders on Sunday night. Then Monday night you have Philadelphia, Tampa Bay, and then the Rams at Cincinnati. Cincinnati, are they in trouble? Joe Burrow, 0-2, injury, this, that, and the other. i tell you one thing. The first thing I thought about when Joe Burrow signed that contract was uh, goodbye T. Higgins in terms of uh, him being the number two guy for um, for Cincinnati. Basically, that uh, signing Joe Burrow to that contract basically broke up, broke up the best quarterback-wide receiver duo combination in the league for down the road because you can't sign Jamar Chase. You can't sign Joe Burrow to the money that you signed him to and then expect to uh, keep T. Higgins not happening. So those are the games. That's what's happening in the NFL. I got to get to Colorado after the boogie break, man. After I listen to a little Flo Ballard, after I listen to a little Diana Ross, after I listen to a little Mary Wilson speaking about the symphony, I want to be speaking about the symphony, which has been the Colorado Buffaloes football team. Prime time. Prime time is going to be ending. The Rock, Little Wayne. Michael Irvin, all of you guys who have been on the sidelines and been jumping on that uh, primetime bandwagon or on the primetime train, you better get off it because it's headed toward a brick wall. That brick wall is going to be in Eugene starting this weekend. So I'll be discussing all of those things and then some concerning the primetime effect. My primetime as I hear a symphony right here on Wendell's World and Sports.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Thank you, sexy. Thank you, gorgeous. Thank you, diva. Two of the three, rest in peace. The legendary Mary Wilson and the absolutely sexy and gorgeous Flo Ballard, along with the boss, Diana Ross, who I tell you, man, you speak about someone who was a diva in terms of wanting to get her way and uh, not letting anybody get in her way. She didn't care who she had to fight. She didn't have to, she didn't care who she had to sleep sleep with to get famous. And uh, yeah, Diana Ross. So there you go. There you go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about what's happening in college football, I was speaking about Colorado, right? Unbelievable victory over Colorado State. Great theater on Saturday night, 43-35. It was unbelievable. It was fantastic. It was great. This, that, and the other. Um, How many people watched that game? The double overtime victory against Colorado State drew 9.3 million viewers making it the most-watched late-night college football game ever on ESPN. The game didn't kick off until around 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time here in the racist, divided states of America and did not end until about 2.30 in the morning East Coast time. So it was ESPN's fifth most-watched regular season game ever on the network for any time slot. And the broadcast window for ESPN College Football normally at that time averaged somewhere between 1.7 million viewers and around that number. Now you could speak about, well, big deal. It was uh, last weekend was a slow weekend. There weren't any marquee games and this, that, and the other. No, nah, man, that's a prime time effect. That's all that was. I don't, I don't give a darn. They weren't going up against a prime time game or anything like that. The way college football is right now, the way sports is right now, there, there really is no dominant team in terms of the entertainment value. There really is no other team that's going to grab your attention like the Colorado Buffaloes, and that's thanks to prime time coach prime Deion Sanders. Um, you know, I, I, I love it. I I absolutely love it, man. I love the fact that it was the most streamed regular season college football game of all time for ESPN. Love the fact that ESPN and Fox pregame shows broadcast from Boulder Live. Love the fact that 60 Minutes was in town for the second time in a calendar year to uh, do a Deion Sanders piece. Wonderful. Fantastic. Love the fact that The Rock was there. I love the entertainment. I love the celebrities. I love it, man. People who are sitting there talking about this is terrible, this is horrible, Deion Sanders, this and this, this, who want to throw shade and hate on Deion Sanders for having celebrities uh, attend their games. Were y'all saying the same thing back in the day, back at the start of the uh, Pete Carroll era at the uh, when, when he took over and got things rolling at USC and you had Will Ferrell and you had Denzel Washington and you had Snoop and you had all these other luminaries on the sideline? In fact, it, Pete Carroll encouraged having stars not only go to the games but come to practice so they can be attached to the program because, hey, when you're 18 years old and you're living in New Jersey or you're living in New York or you're living in the DMV or you're living in uh, somewhere in Texas or Ohio and you see that you could go out to beautiful Southern California and you can have your practices being watched by, by, by Kardashians and movie stars, and you're deciding whether you want to go to Columbus, Ohio, or Clemson, South Carolina, or Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or Norman, Oklahoma, 
And then you have the opportunity to go to Los Angeles, California, even though I'm not a big fan of Los Angeles myself, because I grew up in a real city, the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, the best place to live, the best place to grow up, the best place to raise your children, Maryland born, Maryland bred, and when I die, I'll be Maryland dead. So LA, L.A. don't mean nothing to me. But if I'm 18 years old and I'm a five-star running back, offensive lineman, defensive back, wide receiver, tight end, whatever, and you take me out on my trip, because with college football, I ain't going to the University of Maryland. And I ain't going to Howard University. Sorry, HBCUs. So if I'm being recruited by whoever, wherever, however, all over, and they take me out to USC, and you put me in front of some of them females, the Wendell Wallace of 18 to 22, hell yeah! I have the opportunity to be playing in front of Snoop. I have the opportunity to be playing in front of Denzel. I have the opportunity to be playing in front of Will Ferrell. I have the opportunity to uh, play in front of movie stars and glamour gals. And my name is Wendell Wallace. I'm 18 to 22 years old. Hell yeah! I'm going to USC. So I never got angry. I was never angry at Pete Carroll for, for exploiting that advantage that he had. Now all of a sudden it seems to be a problem when uh, folks are seeing celebrities on the sidelines for Colorado football games. I don't, I don't know where people are speaking about that. So if you weren't salty when USC was doing it back in the day, I don't know why you would be salty now with primetime. Well, I know why, but um, that's another story. Here's the thing, though. With, with all of this being said, again, Colorado being the talk of the town, talk of sports, this, that, and the other, blah, blah. This hype train is going to come to a crashing end on Saturday. Now, I'm not saying that with glee. I'm not saying that with a smile on my face. I'm not saying that while dancing in the streets. I'm not saying that while running around giving my neighbors high five because I'm so happy about it. Um, but I'm just stoked in reality, man. And what Deion Sanders is doing is fantastic. What Deion Sanders is doing is wonderful. The fact that, and, and, and people are speaking about, well, you know, the, the haters, shall I say, are speaking about, well, no big deal. I mean, ooh, wow, we're getting all excited because... They beat um, they beat Nebraska, which stinks. They beat Colorado State, a team that they were 20-something point favorites to win at home. Colorado, I think, is ranked, what, 122nd in the power rankings. And at home, you're a ranked team, Colorado. You have to go to double overtime to beat those guys in a game that featured 27 penalties. We're storming the field. We're a top 20 team, allegedly. And we're storming the field after we beat a team that's ranked 122nd in the power rankings in double overtime. And we're storming the field. And we're having 60 minutes. And we're devoting almost all of our sports time to Deion Sanders. Really? Really? They beat Colorado State. They beat uh, TCU. And then they beat uh, Nebraska. And we're up there acting like all of a sudden now Colorado is a new dynasty. We're all of a sudden now acting like Deion Sanders is Nuke Rotney and Nick Saban and Era Parsegian and Bud Wilkinson all wrapped into one. Really? We're giving all this love. All of a sudden now Shador Sanders is supposed to be the greatest thing in the history of sports. Really? We're doing all this. Really? I'm not mad at any of that. But we have to temper our expectations to say, look, man, this has been great. This has been fun. This has been wonderful. But this reality show in terms of the happy, happy, joy, joy ends on Saturday. They're going to get blown out by, they're going to get blown out by Oregon. They're going to get blown out by Oregon. I hate to say that. 
I don't want to say that. But they're going to get blown out by by Oregon. So the happy, happy, joy, joy, this is wonderful. The All this stuff comes to an end on Saturday. And I think some of the some of the things that we've kind of ignored, overlooked, I don't know what you want to say, those things are going to come to fruition in terms of, look, I think that uh, Shador Sanders, the quarterback for Colorado, is eventually going to be a top 10 draft pick when everything is all said and done. Could be num- the third quarterback taken after Caleb Williams and Drake May if he continues to play like he plays. But there's some things about his game in terms of holding on to the football that he needs to uh, get rid of. And I think Oregon is going to exploit that. I think the offensive line for Colorado has been inconsistent. And you combine that with a quarterback who holds the ball too long because he's looking for the big play. I think that's going to be a cause for trouble. And then on the other side of the football, when you're speaking about a defense that's ranked 96th in terms of stopping anybody, and you see teams like Colorado State put up 35 points, you would see teams like TCU put up 42 points. What do you think Bo Nix in Oregon, in Oregon is going to do? A team that I think when they played Hawaii and Portland State, I think they combined to score like uh, in those two games against Hawaii and Portland State. I think Oregon scored at least 427 points minus a few. So I don't know exactly what Colorado is going to do to stop them. Then you take a look at the fact that they're going to be playing on the road in such a hostile environment for a lot of those guys who came from Jackson State, a lot of those guys who didn't get the amount of playing time that they're getting right now and the importance and the responsibility that they have for Colorado right now. Now you're going to put them in such a hostile environment for the first time. It's going to be a rough, 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 bow wow rough type of uh, feeling for the Colorado Buffalo. So I hate to say it, but on Saturday, this is where the wonderful made for Disney, remember the Titans, Rudy Husers, and any other tear-jerking movie will hit an absolute brick wall. Then it's going to be interesting to see what's going to be the narrative going forward. What's going to be happening going forward? First time in the coaching career of Deion Sanders at the college level that he's going to get his ass whooped. That he's going to be embarrassed. That his team is going to get beat down. And then that's what, because the haters are just waiting. The haters right now are licking their chops. The haters right now, they're, they're, they're just sharpening their claws. They're sharpening their knives. Right now, the haters are starting to practice their dance steps because they're going to grace sites and practicing the dance steps. Because on a Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, East Coast time, when Oregon, oh no, 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 I'm sorry, because the game is going to be on in the afternoon. So around 3.30 Pacific Standard Time, when Oregon is done whooping up on Colorado, there's going to be a whole lot of I told you so's. There's going to be a whole lot of laughing at Deion Sanders. There's going to be a whole lot of I told you so's and all this hate and this, that, and the other coming toward Chidor and this and his other son and Dion in the program and The Rock and all these other folks who have attached themselves to this program. A lot of the hate, a lot of the I told you so's, a lot of the no, now, now go back into your corner, now show, know your role and shut your mouth are going to be are going to be shouting from the heavens and shouting from the mountains and shouting from everywhere else in between. How does Dion, how does Coach Prime and that coaching staff get that team going to move forward? 
Because I see a lot of those players, I see a lot of those kids, especially Shador, who's starting to feel pretty good about themselves. Who all of a sudden now think that their King Kong ain't got nothing on meism. That they the man. That they that they Hercules. Hercules, Hercules. Now what's gonna be happening when bad bad Leroy Brown gets his ass whooped like he did in that Jim Croce song? What's gonna be happening to bad bad Leroy Brown? How is he going to return from that? How is Godzilla gonna start breathing fire again? How are they gonna scorch the earth when that happens? It's gonna be interesting. It's going to be absolutely positively interesting. Again, I, I love what Dion is doing. I think Dion is the right person for the program. I think Dion has been great for college football. I think Dion has been a breath of fresh air. I love to see these old heads. I love to see these these get off my lawn types squirm and and and, and shout and, and and deplore and talk negative about this stuff. I love it. I love these. I love these old folks. I love these old fogies who grew up with the three yards in the cloud of dust. I love these guys who think that these coaches should be so rigid and not have any flavor, not have any pizzazz, not have any charisma. I love it. I love it. I love the fact that Dion has made these guys feel uncomfortable. I love the fact that Dion had made these guys take notice. I love the fact that Dion now, through the first three games of the season, has made a long-lasting permanent imprint on how you build a college football team. Not so much... By the, by, the, by the way he built the team with the transfer portal, but just the way that, you know, he's getting himself out there, just the way that those cameras are following him, just all of those things. While all of those things, like I said, with USC and others have been, have been done, I think Dion, through his personality and his charisma, has taken it up a notch. Now, do I expect some of these guys to uh, emulate on the same level as Dion? Well, no, of course not. But that's where their coaching acumen and their facilities and other things come into play when they start trying to recruit the same type of players that Dion is recruiting. Look, man, before we find out exactly, before we get a final analysis, final decision on whether this worked or not or whatever, it's going to take at least three or four years. Dion's got to go through at least three or four recruiting cycles. Dion's got to go through a lot more before we start determining whether this phenomenon it's nothing more than a phenomenon or something that's going to settle down and become permanent in terms of Colorado reaching the expectations. The little engine that not only can, but the little engine is going to grow up to be a monster and start running over folks. You know, the Amtrak going to be all of a sudden going to grow up to be a mile-long freight train that's going to be running over cars, running over people, running over bikes, leaping tall buildings in a single bound. We, 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 have, we have to take some time to find that out. We can't figure that out. And um, one season, we can't figure that out in three games. And it doesn't matter whether they get destroyed by Oregon and then get destroyed by USC and finish the season with five win or six wins, or whether they shock the world and, and go undefeated. There's still going to be no solid concrete determination to say, yep, this worked, this didn't work. I need to see more evidence. I need to see, Dion's not going to go out, as I mentioned before in other podcasts, Dion ain't going to go out and start recruiting and start bringing in 50, 60, 70, 80 players from the transfer portal every single season. This was something that happened once when, when the coach is hired and he takes over a 1-11 football program. This is something that he needed to do. 
Because as I mentioned before, for those who are talking about, well, he, what he did with the program in terms of running those kids off and wrong, and it was terrible and all those type of things, I will mention to you again, what was Deion Sanders supposed to do? Why should he stay loyal to a team and players that finished 1-11 and was a bad 1-11? This wasn't a situation where the 11 losses... Seven of them were by one score. Three of them were by two scores. No, this was a program in Colorado the year before Deion Sanders got there that had talent on their team that should not be playing high major college football. The same thing with my Georgetown Hoyers. Oh my goodness, Patrick Ewing ran off eight players the second year, um, the, the, the first year that he went 6-25 a couple of seasons ago. That's because he recruited players that he found out could not play Big East college basketball, could not play big-time college basketball. And as we've seen in college athletics time and time again, look, man, you could be great on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but if you ain't getting it done on Saturday, you don't have a job. I don't care what the team's GPA is. If you go 3-8, and 3-8, eight, and 4-7, eight, and four and seven, you will not have a job. And determining upon which some of the jobs that you take, if you go 8-3, and 9-2, and two, and 8-3, and three, I don't care what your team's GPA is. I don't care how many all-academic uh, all-American academics you have on your team. I don't care how many old ladies they, they help across the street. I don't care how many cats they, and birds and animals that they save from trees. I don't care what type of social work that they do. I don't care if they solve a cure for cancer. I don't care if they face racism and sexism and that type of things. None of that stuff matters. As a college football coach, if your team does not win football games or win enough football games, none of that other stuff matters. So for Deion Sanders, who came in, he's making $6 million a year. He's got a lot of haters. He's got a lot of people saying he can't do anything. He's got a lot of people saying that are just waiting for him to fail. He walks into a, he walks onto a campus with a football team that was 1-11. What the hell do you want him to do? Keep those players? Yeah, that's wonderful, Deion. Keep those players. I'm quite sure all of those other coaches, if Deion Sanders kept those players that were 1-11, they had no business playing high major division one football. If he would have kept those players, I'm quite sure there would have been a multitude of coaches, especially the ones that were playing against him, that would have been going, you know, Dion, way to go. What a guy. So, so wonderful. So fantastic. What a great man. Yeah, they would have loved the decision for him to stay loyal to those guys and make sure that those guys are all right. You know why? Because those coaches would have been so gleeful to play that team because they know they would be winning 54 to nothing. <laughs> so yes, Dion, please, for, by all means, don't get rid of those guys and bring in your Louis Vuitton. Keep those, keep those players that we've been beating up on for the past five, six, seven years. I love getting my seven-figure salary. I love having that free membership at the country club. I love going to bowl games. I love building my brand. I, I love it, says the competitors who play Colorado, the coaches who play Colorado every year and beat their brains in. So yes, yes, Dion, please keep all of those players that we've been beating up on. Dion said, no, 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 no. Them days are over. Them days are over. So look, you can quibble or you can complain and do all those type of things. Now again, now if, D, if, if the, when Dion came in, this is what he had to do to, <clears throat> this is what he had to do to uh, stay relevant or to uh, get the ball rolling toward improving the Colorado football program. 
Now, if he's bringing in 30, 40, 50, 60 transfers every year, then we've got a problem. Because A, that means he ain't winning, and B, it's showing that this is not the way to uh, build a successful college football program. Then you really got some issues. If this is going to be a yearly trend, but I think Dion after this season is going to do the traditional way of recruiting, and him being out there and doing what he's doing can only help. Hell, you think... Dabo Sweeney, who's struggling right now, you think that Alabama with Nick Saban, the way they're struggling right now to meet or reach expectations, you're not wishing, they're, they're, you don't think that they're wishing and hoping that they had one-tenth of the persona and the pizzazz and the charisma to get some of these guys, to get some of these recruits they need to recruit, to get some of these transfers that they need to transfer to their program to get them back to the level that they were before? ho, 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 ho. So there you go. I, I, it's going to be interesting moving forward. And as I mentioned again, whether whether Colorado loses these next two games to Oregon and USC, whether they lose by a combined score of 110 to nothing, doesn't matter to me, or, or they play competitive, this is not going to be a stamp. This is not going to be a complete evaluation on the Colorado program on Coach Sanders, on his players, none of those things. So look, this game, win or lose, this upcoming game against Oregon, this game with USC, Caleb Williams versus Jador Sanders, must-see television. Oh, 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 oh. That's going to be the last vestige of overloading on the Colorado football program, the week of USC and Colorado, Shador versus Caleb. And I think Caleb is going to want to remind everybody that, uh, yeah, by the way, I am the Heisman Trophy winner. For those who are right now slobbering and drooling on Shador, um, let me remind you who the Heisman Trophy winner was last season. Let me remind you guys who the best player in college football is. Y'all talking about Travis Hunter being the best college football player? Let me, let me remind you guys why I won the Heisman Trophy and why I'm going to be the number one draft pick in the NFL draft if I decide to come out this season. Let me remind you guys. And don't take for granted that there's a lot of coaches who have a lot more talent this season than prime who are going to want to put the smackdown big time on that Colorado football program. I think Dan Lemming and I think that uh, um, I, I think that every other team that they're going to Lincoln Riley, every other team that they're going to be playing, that Colorado is going to be playing when you're speaking about Oregon State, when you're speaking about Washington State, when you're think, speaking about Chip Kelly at UCLA, when you speak about, again, Lincoln Riley and Dan Lemmings over at uh, Oregon, I think these guys are going to want to send a message to uh, Coach Prime that, you know, you're getting just a little too much hype. You're getting a little too much credit. You're getting a little too big for your britches. And it's about time that we put you in place. So I wouldn't be surprised, especially when you're speaking about Oregon, USC, and then Oregon State. I I think these guys, the Washington State, I think these guys are going to send the message. And I think that message is going to be loud and clear. If you're Lincoln Riley in the USC program, I'm going to want to beat Colorado 100 to nothing. If we're up 98 to nothing with two minutes left to go in the fourth quarter, yeah, I'm still going to be running reverses and going for broke because USC should be that program. They're in that city. They have that swag. They have that quarterback. They have that talent. USC, in my opinion, should be the one. If I'm playing for USC, we should be the one that should be getting all the hype that's going to Colorado. And if I'm Caleb Williams, 
And I see Shador Sanders, oh, he's talking to Tom Brady and he's got a watch and he's got a Rolls and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I might have my Wendy's commercial. Yeah, I might have my uh, Heisman Trophy thing commercial. Yeah, I might have some NIL money and all that type of stuff. But I'm getting a little sick and tired of every week in college football being the Sanders family programming. It's about time that I put Shador in his place. And you can take Tom Brady and all those other guys who are kissing your ass and kiss my ass. So I think that's going to be the uh, point that I think Colorado is going to be. Or I I think that the venom and the anger and the frustration that Colorado is going to be facing again when they play Bo Nix in Oregon and when they play Lincoln Riley and uh, USC. So, like I said, man, this is not hating on Dion. This is just about reality. So I think that the hype train, prime time, ends on Saturday and gets permanently dismantled uh, for the rest of the season in terms of the level that they've been receiving and the level of attention that they've been receiving. I think that ends with a thud two weeks from now against USC. And then after that performance by USC, depending upon other situations, Alabama and Notre Dame, uh, Texas and other, now we can start again kind of dividing our attention to other teams and not giving it all to just one team and one coach and one quarterback. So, and one wide receiver slash defensive back. So that's some good stuff. Hey man, college football week three coming up. There's some exciting games. This is going to be a don't go nowhere. College football Saturday, the best games, the best plots in Alabama. I'm going to kind of focus on that on my last segment, Alabama, Alabama, Alabama. Exactly. What happened? to their quarterback. What happened to the lineage of Hertz to Tua to Jones to Young? What what happened there? Talk about that. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World and Sports. Last segment of the podcast. Last segment of the program. Thank you, Diana. Appreciate it. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough for you to turn on and listen to the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to. All right, man, let me go ahead and get to, because I'm running out of time, but I want to get to um, some games this weekend, as I mentioned before, in terms of, man, there's some really, really good games. There's some great games going on this weekend. Um, We've got Notre Dame at, uh, well, we got uh, Ohio State at Notre Dame. Ohio State finally deciding on who the quarterback is going to be. Marvin Harrison had a good game, his last game. For Notre Dame, we spoke about these quarterbacks. We spoke about... 
Caleb Williams. I spoke about the showdown in a couple of weeks between Caleb Williams and Shador Sanders, the Heisman Trophy winner, the, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, and against the most talked about player in college football in that matchup, which is going to be happening in two weeks. I think one of the dark horse Heisman Trophy candidates that's not getting any time because everything's being sucked up in Boulder in terms of attention, in terms of, wait a minute now, we haven't been paying too much attention or not enough attention on this player. This could be really a breakout weekend for Sam Hartman, the quarterback for Notre Dame. Three touchdown passes on Sunday, bringing his career pass total to 123, which tied Landry Jones, former OS, uh, former Ohio, excuse me, former Oklahoma quarterback for seventh most in uh, college football history. Um, look, man, I mean, with Hartman at quarterback, Notre Dame has completely turned things around. And you speak about the success of Marcus Freeman, and you think about the 180 that. Notre Dame has been on offense from last year to this year, it's because of Sam Hartman. The fact that now Alabama, excuse me, now the fact that Notre Dame has a realistic chance because of Notre Dame, because of their schedule, they have a real opportunity to be one of the sleepers to play in the college football tournament or the playoffs. And that's all because of Sam Hartman. And this is going to be a big test if they can beat Ohio State, even though it's going to be at home, even though Ohio State is still going through some growing pains at the quarterback position. I still feel this is going to be a game where we should be paying close attention to because it can really answer some questions in terms of we speak about Texas being back. We speak about Colorado and their chances and whether they're good or how good are they or are they overrated or are they underrated. One of the teams that used to share that space in terms of attention getting with a Colorado in terms of the attention was Notre Dame, right? Notre Dame, just like Colorado has been for the first three weeks, Notre Dame has been a polarizing team for generations upon generations. So now Notre Dame really has a chance to make a huge statement if they can pull off the victory against Ohio State. Yes, Ohio State so far has not been the juggernaut that they've been over the last couple of uh, a couple of uh, teams, shall we say? But still, Ohio State is still Ohio State. Ryan Day is still Ryan Day. And they still have a very talented team, even with an inexperienced quarterback. And again, another player that has flown under the radar because we've been speaking about Colorado so much. Marvin Harrison Jr. I mean, he was a guy that was coming into the season talked about as one of the most talented or the best player in college football. This is an opportunity for him to remind people that, hey, you know, while you guys are still yapping about uh, Colorado, uh, don't forget about me because I'm pretty damn good also. So, yeah, man, that's one. That's going to be the, the marquee games. You know, I'm interested to see if Georgia is going to wake up and play a good game. I'm interested to see if Clemson, that's going to be a statement game. They're not ranked in the uh, top 25. The game against Florida State who had to come back against Boston College. I'm interested to see um, I'm interested to see that big game for Dabo Sweeney. Big game for Dabo Sweeney. About five years ago, Clemson was regarded as one of the top-tier programs in college football. They were on the verge of becoming a dynasty. They were um, considered even a stronger dynasty, mini-dynasty at that time than Alabama because they beat Alabama two, two times or three years in the national championship game. So I, I'm interested to see if Clemson can start building back up near that uh, near those expectations in Florida State, if they're for real. 
after going through the Willie Taggart nonsense and Mike Norvell coming in and rebuilding that program, how far along are they? It's going to be a big test for them, and not only to uh, beat Clemson, a a team that has been considered a strong elite college football team for the past 10 years, but also for Florida State to get back to the success that they had since Bobby Bowden and put themselves in pretty good position with a win over Clemson and then an early season win over LSU to uh, have them build a strong resume for being one of the four teams that can compete in the college football playoffs. So other games that I'm looking at, you got Oklahoma, Cincinnati, UCLA at Utah, Oregon State at Washington State. Do you realize that eight of the 12 Pac-12 teams are undefeated? And this is a league that's not going to be existing, or what we know as is not going to be existing after this upcoming season. The, again, most intriguing football game, and I will end with this, is going to be Ole Miss versus Alabama. Alabama outside the top 10 of the Associated Press poll for the first time in eight years. They've gone back to Jalen Milrow at the starting quarterback. Milrow was young, Bryce Young's former backup. Began the season at the starter. Was benched after throwing two interceptions and a loss to Texas. And then didn't, didn't take a single snap against uh, Florida. Well, the Florida, some one of them Florida teams. A team they should have routed. Tyler Buckner came in. The late addition from Notre Dame. Transferred to Notre Dame. Came in with Tommy Reese, offensive coordinator. He got the start. And threw five for 14 for 54 of 34 yards before Dick Saban and those guys had seen enough. Then they put in redshirt freshman Ty Simpson. And he ran for a one-yard touchdown, but he pleaded, completed five and nine pass attempts for 73 yards and was sacked multiple times. So you take a look at the quarterbacks that played on Saturday for Alabama. Buckner and Simpson, right? They produced an 18-and-a-half QBR in the game, which is the fourth lowest in 224 games under Saban in the lowest since 2009 when Saban and Alabama played against South Carolina. The QBs were sacked five times. They combined to go 5-23 and 23 against a team. It was favored to beat five, by five touchdowns and a team that had given up 41 points to Western Kentucky in the season opener. So, yeah, there's, there's some major problems here with Alabama in their quarterback position. So, look, you take a look at Milrow, Buckner, and Simpson. Could you say, Alabama football fans, that they're the worst trio of quarterbacks on the roster for the next Saban era? And now the way that college football is being played, you can't win with quarterbacks like that. You need quarterbacks who can put the ball in the air. And none of these guys can do that with any consistency. And you, know, you take a look at the Saban era of quarterbacks, and you start off with John David Parker Wilson from 2006 to 2008. Greg McElroy was the first Saban quarterback who won him a championship under uh, Alabama's uh, under coaching Alabama in 2009. Then you had A.J. McCarron starting from 2011 and 2013. And the thing that he's most remembered for is winning two national championships for Alabama in 2011 and 2012, getting yelled and screamed at, I believe, in 2011 when he filled in for McElroy and Alabama was winning like 82 to nothing against somebody. And I think McCarron threw an interception and about two minutes left to go in the game. And even before he got to the sideline, there's Nick Saban just yelling at him, just just giving him a new one right out there. And um, the other thing that A.J. McCarron is known for was his girlfriend. So I don't know what happened to her, but uh, those are the three or four main things that uh, make up the A.J. McCarron, McCarron era. Of course, the best being the two national championships that he won for 
uh, Saban. Then you have the transition period from 2014 to 16. 2014, you had Blake Sims, who beat out Jay Coker to win the starting job at quarterback, led Alabama to a 12-2 record by throwing for almost 3,500 yards that year. They lost that. They lost in the Sugar Bowl to Utah. I remember they lost in the SEC championship game, I believe, to Florida. And then they went and played Utah, who I think Utah was undefeated or they had one loss or something like that. And they lost to um, Utah. And um, people were making excuses for Saban about how they were so crestfallen that they really couldn't get up and play and compete against a team like Utah. So Utah really didn't beat them. A real Alabama team because Utah... Uh, played an Alabama team that was still licking its wounds from losing to Florida, and they didn't show up, so they tried to discount that uh, loss for Saban. But, uh, you know, so Blake Sims came in in 2014, then you had Jay Coker in 2015, then you had uh, Jalen Hurts starting in 2016. So you had Hurts, the Tua, the Mac Jones, the Bryce Young. So that accounted right there for one or two Heisman Trophy winners, two Heisman Trophy finalists, three first-round draft picks, two in the top five, all NFL starting quarterbacks right now. Jalen Hurts competing in the Super Bowl, almost outplaying Patrick Mahomes. So with the lineage of recent quarterbacks that have been for Alabama, what in the hell happened? And how did you end up with these three slugs? Milrow, Milrow, <laughs> Milrow Simpson and Buckner. Well, I mean, look, man, Milrow was a constellation prize in 2021. They had Jake, they had Drake May. Drake May committed to Alabama, then he decommitted. Maybe he saw that death chart and said, I'm not getting any run here. Mac Jones gave him a call and said, UNC, and May said, yeah, right. So, look, Milrow, whose playing style, I guess, you can figure what is closest to Blake Sims, I guess, Jalen Hurts. At, at Alabama before he went to Oklahoma, maybe somewhere around there. So, look, so far, and look, we've only had one game against, we've only had one game against Texas. Middle Tennessee, for me, doesn't count. He kind of resembles the same quarterback as last season, don't you think, if you're watching this game? In fact, the Power 5 defensive coordinator said Milrow was essentially the same player that he was when he watched him uh, two years ago or a year ago. It's either a big play or nothing. In fact, the former SEC coach said Milrow simply isn't skilled enough in the short to immediate intermediate passing game which is what Alabama needs to keep the defenses honest. So this past offseason, Alabama went to the transfer portal. They looked for some experienced quarterback, but by the time they went around to see if Sam Hartman and Alex Van Dyke and Drake May and Brendan Armstrong and Spencer Sanders and Walker Howard were available, they weren't. They had already decided which um, teams they were going to go to or going to transfer to. Or in the case of Van Dyke, he decided to stay at uh, Miami. In the case of... Um, Drake May, he decided to stay at North Carolina. So the best option was Tyler Buckner, which that was really no option. So then you speak, you speak about the turnovers from offensive coordinators. You went from Steve Starkeesian, who was the one who vouched to encourage Saban to go after Milrow and sign Milrow. Well, he took the Texas job about a week after Milrow signed his letter of, of intent. Then... Bill O'Brien, who had been working with Milrow for a couple of years, he takes the offensive coordinator job at the New England Patriots. Alex Mortensen, the analyst behind the scenes quarterback guru, who spent nine seasons at Alabama, he left in December to join the new staff at UAB. So there's been nothing. So Milrow really hasn't been given a fair opportunity to see what he can do in terms of being that guy at quarterback. 
But there's just no there's no skilled players, as I mentioned before, for Alabama that jump off the page. The week before, I was speaking about where, where are the dynamic wide receivers? Where's that dynamic running back? The offensive line has been inconsistent. And now you don't have the defense for the past couple of years. The defense that Saban has been known for when he was with Michigan State and when he was with um, LSU, that's no longer there. Though the rules changes now in college football will not allow Nick Saban to have the type of dominant defenses that he made his bread and butter on when he was a defensive coordinator with uh, Bill Belichick with the Cleveland Browns before he went to the college route and uh, Bill Strong defenses with the Spartans of Michigan State and the Tigers at LSU. He doesn't have that anymore. That Nick Saban, who's that defensive guru who are going to be putting those type of defensive teams on the field, those dominating defensive teams on the field, that's no longer there. So against Mississippi at home, are you going to be surprised if Lane Kiffin gets gets the best of his old former coach? I'm not. And if that happens, then some shit's going to hit the fan. We've already heard this talk about Nick Saban retiring, this, that, and the other. You know, who knows, this, that, and the other. But it's going to be an interesting week in college football, and I cannot wait to watch. All right, I'm done. I'm out of here. I've done enough damage. Um, I am going to sign off. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Again, as always, as I say before, please do what you need to do to make this world a better place. I'm tired of saying that we live in the racist, ignorant, divided states of America, but we do. There's nothing in terms of anything, in terms of positivity, in terms of unity, in terms of togetherness that we can all agree on. And we, we, should, we should all agree that we need to love each other. We all should agree that we need to unify with each other. We all need to agree that we need to respect those. We all need to agree that we need to forgive and forget others' trans, uh, trespasses. We should all do that, but we don't. We should learn from the history of slavery and racism and ignorance and misogyny and hatred toward Asians and Hispanics and others and gays and others. We, we should learn from those past ignorances and come together in unity and harmony. But we don't. So my generation is gone. My generation is lost. It's going to be us for us to teach the younger folks because they're going to be the ones who are going to try to stitch back this country. We've, we've, we've never been united. We've never been united. But I think now the chasm between united and everything that this country should stand for is, um, is really broken. And so we need the younger generation to start with the long, long process of uh, healing some of those wounds. So if we could do that, that would be great. Get me out of here with some music. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting in the evening calm Watching the ships roll in Then I watch them roll away again I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time I left my home Georgia, and I headed for the Frisco Bay. 
I've got nothing to live for Look like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just gonna sit on the darker bay Watching the tide roll away Sitting on the darker bay Wasting time Look like nothing's gonna change Everything seems to stay the same 